in the year of our Lord, 1620, in September of that year, 102 men, women, and children seeking freedom from religious persecution and also just the freedom of religion sailed from their homes in England to establish a new home in what was then called the New World. Sixty-five days later, 98 of the 102, uh, arrived off of the coast of what we call North America. Four had already arrived at their eternal homes. They searched for a month trying to find a suitable harbor for the ship through winter. And after a month, they finally settled at Plymouth. By the following spring, half of the remaining pilgrims joined the other four in the eternal home. They had died from starvation and from uh, sickness of various kinds. In the following fall, 1621, after a successful time of harvest and help from the indigenous people, the remaining pilgrims celebrated a three-day feast as an expression of their thanksgiving to God for his faithfulness and his kindness and his grace to them. That celebration, of course, is the root and foundation for our celebration that we will observe this coming Thursday that we call Thanksgiving. But at that first celebration, Governor William Bradford who has, was and left England as a separatist Puritan pastor, stated this, and this is a quote, May not and ought not the children of these fathers rightly say, Our fathers were Englishmen, which came over this great ocean and were ready to perish in this wilderness. But they cried unto the Lord, and he heard their voice and looked on their adversity. Let them therefore praise the Lord because he is good and his mercies endure forever. Yes, let them which have been redeemed of the Lord show how he hath delivered them from the hand of the oppressor. When they wandered in the desert wilderness out of the way, and found no city to dwell in, both hungry and thirst, their soul was overwhelmed in them. Let them confess before the Lord of his loving kindness and his wonderful works before the sons of men. And that's from the diary of Governor Bradford that he kept um, of the events of that settlement. Psalm 107, and if you would, take a copy of the scriptures and turn to Psalm 107, has been called the Pilgrim's Psalm. 
Not because it talks about the Plymouth Pilgrims. And it's not because that they love this psalm more than any other portion of the Word of God. They held to all the Word of God, all the psalms, all the scriptures. But because they saw themselves in this psalm. In Psalm 107. John Newton apparently did. In the writing of Amazing Grace, he applies this psalm to himself. When he writes, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Newton is embracing and applying Psalm 107 to So I want us to read in a moment from Psalm 107, and as we do so and consider it, I pray that it will be an encouragement and strength to us as pilgrims, and that it will be um, honoring to God, but as we go to God's own word and see what he teaches and says to us. Now, a few words of general introduction before I read this psalm. The theme for this psalm is thanksgiving and its motives. You might recall last Lord's Day as we opened uh, in our scripture reading uh, from the psalms in Psalm 1, we noted that the book of Psalms is divided into five books. And as you're looking now at your Bible, you'll notice that at the heading of Psalm 107, it says Book 5. And so this is the beginning psalm of the fifth book of the Psalms. We noted that the first book, which is chapters 1 through 41, emphasize how God is beside us. How the second book, chapters 42 through 72, emphasize how God goes before us. He's beside us. He goes before us. Book 3, chapters 73 through 89 are a reminder that God is all around us. Chapter, uh, book 4, chapters 90 through 106, God is above us. And book 5, chapters 107 through 150, God is among us. God is beside us, goes before us, is all around us, is above us, and among us. And each of those divisions, each of those books, ends with a doxology. Let's take just a moment to just flip back in Psalms, since you're in the book of Psalms, turn back to Psalm 41 for just a moment. Look at verse 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Then if you would, turn to Psalm 72. And you'll notice it ends with a similar doxology. Verses 18 and 19 of Psalm 72. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. And then if you would, look to uh, Psalm 89, verse 52. 
Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. And then we look at Psalm 106, verse 48. Blessed be the God, the, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. And then as we noted, Psalm 150, the closing chapter of the fifth book, the entire psalm is, the, is one of praise, a doxology, that everything that has breath would praise God. Everything would praise God. Well, some think that Psalm 107 is part of a trilogy. And that seems to be a popular thought, and it certainly has its merits. That in Psalm 105, that we have a recounting of the history of Israel from the time of God's covenant with Abraham until the time that they entered the promised land. In Psalm 106, there's a record of the unfaithfulness of Israel during this same period and their exile into Babylon. And then Psalm 107, a psalm of praise of Israel after their captivity. Now some take a little bit, shall we say, broader appeal to Psalm 107 than just including it in that trilogy, which that trilogy, as I said, has its merits. But for example, John Gill writes, indeed, though the literal sense of the text, the literal sense should be attended unto and preserved, yet it seems to be applicable to spiritual persons and things. God gathered the Jews out of captivity and brought them out from Babylon. Also, the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ, gathers the Gentiles from the four corners of the world by the proclamation of the gospel. In Psalm verses 4 through 32, something we might call the body or think of the body of the psalm, God gives us four pictures or cameos of redemption. And each of these pictures begins with the word some. You'll, uh, and we look at verses 4 through 9. Verse 4, some wandered in desert uh, places. Uh, so the emphasis here is on those that are wandering. And then Psalm verses 10 through 16, verse 10. Some set in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. Here we have imprisonment. And then in Psalms uh, verses 17 through 22, verse 17. Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquity suffered affliction. Uh, here we have sickness and uh, different frailties of, of the body. In verses 23 through 32, if you notice verse 23, some went down to the sea in the ships doing business on the great waters. And here we have a picture of those that are storm-tossed. Now, dare I suggest that each of these are a picture and a statement spiritual condition as well as actual historical physical condition 
of the physical realities of the sun. That we are wandering far from God. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Prone to wander. It doesn't take long to become a wandering spirit. And if I'm not mistaken, unfortunately the man that wrote that hymn apostatized. Imprisonment. Even as Jesus stood at Nazareth as the scripture was handed to him and he unfolded and he read it from it and he said that you've heard this scripture and it's being fulfilled today in your ears that he has come to set the prisoner free. Imprisonment. That is a picture of a, sin, of a person called in sin, the addict. Whatever it may be, we can say the addict. That's a simple one. That's, that's low-hanging fruit. We can pick that one. But there's others that are just as, uh, just, we're just as imprisoned by our sins as if there was bars and a lock and a key and it was shut and locked. That is our condition till Christ comes and frees the prisoner. Verses 17 through 22, sickness. And I probably will refer to the ten lepers later in the message today. But this is an awful picture of sin and the ravages of sin on the soul. Of how one is unclean and filthy and cut off and storm-tossed. We read that great statement of of the new heavens and the earth, new earth, and there'll be no more sea. Why? Because in the scriptures, the sea is that which is representative of that of being tossed around, even as those angels, a foaming, uh, raging sea that, that uh, Jude speaks about. And then even in the life of the believer, we're tossed about. But we're told not to be children, that we would be tossed about by every wind and doctrine. Negan Duncan writes that these are not pictures of people in different kinds of conditions. These are a series of pictures about the same reality. These are pictures of what it is like to be in exile, of what it is like to be under the suffering of sin, and what it is like for God to redeem you out of that bondage or captivity. Now, we also would note as we read the psalm that many of these afflictions are many of these afflictions are self-inflicted. You notice verse eleven. Some said in verse ten, some said in the darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God. And how many times in my forty years of ministry has that been my experience in talking? And in my, my own life, that they are in this condition, and you go, Well, the word of God's clear here. Well, I know what it says, but. And then we look in verse number 17 some were fools, and through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquity, suffered affliction. 
They loved any kind of food. And you think about the manna that God gave to Israel, a blessing that He gives to them, and how they said, our soul loves this light bread, this angel manna. They came to love, to hate, to despise. And sometimes... It's like Christians, those that profess to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, loaf the very manna that He gives us. Well, let's look at the psalm. Let's read it now. Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He hath redeemed from trouble. And gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached the city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous, wondrous works to the children of man. For He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungering soul, hungry soul He fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God, spurned the counsel of the Most High, so he bowed down their hearts. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze. And cuts into the bars of iron. You know the ancient cities often would have the wooden gate. And it would be overladen with iron. as uh, a, a thicker layer of protection against the enemy. Well here these gates. The, these doors of bronze are cut into the bars of iron. They are nothing before our God. Some were fools. Through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distresses. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. And they were their wits in. And they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distresses. He made 
the storm be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to the desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. For his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people. And praise him in the assembly of the elders. Let me just pause here for a moment. When I, every time I read that section or hear it referred to, I, my dad didn't talk a lot about his time in the, in the service during World War II. But I remember him talking about a, a particular time. He was on an icebreaker, which is shaped like a bathtub, and they roll and rock a lot, uh, or at least they were then uh, shaped that way. And they were in port, uh, and a big, huge storm was coming in, so not, a lot of the ships stayed in, but his captain sailed out to sail through the storm. And it was in the North Atlantic, and he said they had 90-foot seas, and the ship would go up, and you felt like it was going to go up forever, and then the bottom would fall out, and you just fall down, and you'd hit the bottom again, and then it would be a repeat. He said the way he got through it was just strap yourself in his, his bunk, if all the men did, just to keep from being flung about in the body of the ship. Well, I read this, and I, I think of that. I think of these seas and how great they are and how terrifying that must have been. Verse 33. And by the way, when they came out of this and God delivered them, they didn't go to their tree stand or their couch or their back room and give thanks to God. They went to the assembly. And they praised God. God has done this. This needs to be told. And it's kind of hard to do that if I'm a private believer. It comes with the corporate body. Verse 33, he turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. Think of Sodom in some ways when you read that, don't you? He turns a desert into pools of water and parched land into springs of water. So he reverses. And there he lets the hungry dwell. And they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless waste. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word and let his people say, Amen. Let's join in prayer. Father, we are grateful for your word in this portion of it. We pray now that you would Nurture our very souls and minds and hearts and beings from the marrow of the passage. 
Lord, that we would find it a rich feast. And that your people would be encouraged, the unbeliever would be challenged and brought face to face with the reality of their great sin. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Such exhortations as we find at the beginning of this psalm to give thanks are indeed very common in the scriptures. If you will notice, and today I'm going to be going to some passages, so please follow in your Bible as I go to different places and announce them to you. But in Psalm 92, we read in verses 1 and 2, this is a psalm for the Sabbath. It's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. That kind of... Sounds back to our Bible study lesson of this morning on the Lord's Day and how it used to be bookend and punctuated with morning and evening times of worship. Um, secondly, Psalm 118, um, verse 1, and then also verse 29, the closing verse of that psalm. Verse 1, oh, give thanks to the Lord for He's good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And then verse 29 Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Are you picking up on a theme? What is it? God is good, and His steadfast love, some translations will say mercy, are forever. God is good, and His steadfast love is eternal. Psalm 136. Verse 4. Well, let's do verse 3 and 4. Well, this is, this is the psalm that repeats that refrain over and over and over, I think in every verse pretty much, of the, of the goodness of God and His steadfast love. But verse 3, Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. And on and on and on and on it goes, repeating that refrain. Well, let's consider now as we come to this Psalm 107, let's consider its historical use and its place somewhat in, in, in Scripture. Uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel with me, please. 1 Samuel chapter 4. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the residing place of God, the dwelling place of God, in between the wings of the cherubim on the, uh, the mercy seat, the lid of the covenant, is captured by the Philistines. They steal it. They do this in battle. And Israel's being very foolish and very presumptuous in their approach. Oh, we got this. It's kind of our lucky charm. We can take this battle with the Philistines because God's with us. Here's these ark. Well, they march into battle and they get shown the way back. And, and they are routed. And the Philistines take the ark. 
Well, they put it in their temple, and you know the story. I won't go through all that. But they're ready to get rid of that ark pretty quick. And they send it back because this thing brings them nothing but trouble and pain and sorrow and suffering. So they send the ark back, and in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 7, uh, we read that men of Kirath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark. From that day, that ark was lodged in Kirath-Jerim a long time past, some 20 years, and the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And of course, after a 20-year lamentation and repentance of their sins, they have a great prayer meeting and the presence of God is again known among the people. But this is where it's taken when Israel gets it back. Now, um, if you would turn over to 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 16. David builds a place, well, pitches a tent for the ark to be kept in. And the ark is brought from uh, Kiriath-Jehoram back to Jerusalem and placed in the tent that David has prepared for it. And there is this great celebration. And you'll notice verse 8, David sings a song of praise. The ark is finally back. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make His deeds among, make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek uh, the Lord rejoice. And, and, and on he goes. But you see, here is a reference to those Psalms. Uh, 105, 106, and 107. And it's in part of the song of David rejoicing uh, when the ark is brought back in place uh, in its proper uh, proper setting. Well, for a temporary setting, let me say that. Um, in verse 34, uh, it, toward the end of that song of David, this is the way he concludes it. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. There's the phrase. This is where David brings the ark back. Next we go to Solomon. And we go to 2 Chronicles. So just keep flipping toward the New Testament. You come to 2 Chronicles chapter 5. A tent's not good enough. A house must be built. A temple will be built. And the ark will be placed and it will reside in the temple that Solomon builds. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, we read about the ark being brought uh, to the temple. And we notice in verse number 13 of chapter 5, and it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. There's your song. It's used again at the dedication of the temple. Keep turning in Second Chronicles over to chapter 20. And in chapter 20 of 2 Chronicles, we read about Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat, and going to battle again, and his prayer, and his, uh, their, their need uh, for God to deliver them from their enemies. And in chapter 20, I begin at verse 20, read 20 and 21, 
And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. David, Solomon, Jehoshaphat. Let's take one more. Let's go to Ezra. Just keep flipping toward the New Testament. And go, uh, go to Ezra. Chapter 3. Verse 11. This is at the rebuilding and when the founda- rebuilding of the temple and when the foundation for the new temple under the people that came back from captivity is established under the leadership of Ezra. Verse 11, And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And John Calvin writes, It appears that this psalm, and we're talking about Psalm 107, was not only frequently used among the Jews, but also so incorporated with other psalms that when one part of the chorus on the one side was singing a portion of the psalm, the other part of the chorus on the opposite side, in its turn, after each succeeding verse responded, praise Jehovah because he is good. Do you remember when you were a child, probably most of us have done this, we would sing in rounds? Next line would come in and you'd repeat it. And you'd have four, you'd have the rounds going. What Calvin's talking about is that it seems that this was part of the use of this psalm by David, by Solomon, by Jehoshaphat, by Ezra. We'd start it. The Lord is good. And another, they would keep going with that. Then another chorus would start in, For the Lord is good. And his mercy endures forever. And his mercy endures forever. Can you imagine thousands or hundreds of people doing that? How that must be. Well, I must go on, but that gives you something of the of the how this psalm was engaged and employed in the life of Israel. Issues. But then there's always the question, why the exhortation? Why would a people who has known the covenant grace of God, who's been called out, who's been delivered from bondage, who's been given the word of God, who's seen his miracles constantly and continually over a period of time, why would they need to be exhorted to give thanks? It just seems like that would be natural, wouldn't it? I mean, what else would you do if you had been so blessed? I want to quote again from Legan Duncan. Now this is important because thankfulness, gratitude, is not something which is second nature to us as fallen humans. We are prone, we are tempted to ingratitude. And even as believers, redeemed and renewed in Christ, 
We have a constant battle to fight with ingratitude. Why? Because some of us struggle with entitlement and presumption. And if something's not right, we don't look at ourselves, we look at God, and we point the finger at God and say, God, you're wrong. That's what he's talking about. So we are also in a battle with ingratitude because of our own temperaments and circumstances and experiences. Because you are even tonight sitting on the pew in the midst of experiences and circumstances in your life that are not conducive to gratitude. You got that. How many of you are facing circumstances that are not conducive to being grateful to God? In fact, the circumstances of your life may be challenging you in deep and profound ways and unsettling you in your trust in God. And if your gratitude is tied to those circumstances and experiences, subject rather than objective, it will be fleeting indeed. Well, this psalm supplies us with an unchanging basis of our gratitude. Now, I want to look at two main causes with you that are given to us that we are to be grateful and give thanks unto the Lord. And it's in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Why? For He is good. He is good. A.W. Pink in his Gleanings in the Godhead writes, the original Saxon meaning of our English word God is, quote, the good. God is not only the greatest of all beings, but the best. All the goodness there is in any creature has been imparted from the Creator. But God's goodness is underived. Where does, where does He get goodness from? It's of His essence. He doesn't get it from the outside. As God is infinite in power from all eternity before there was any display thereof or an act of His omnipotence put forth, so He was eternally good before there was any communication of His bounty or any creature to whom it might be imparted or exercised. Before there was anything but God, God is good. That is, of His very essence, He is good. And that's a great blessing we teach our children. And I learned when I was small. God is great. God is good. If they can't get anything else from Christian faith, that is a great truth or truths on which to stand. God's great. God's good. God's goodness is declared in, in creation. Everything that God created, every day that you move through creation, at the end of the day, God would look upon it and He would pronounce it good. It is good. And at the conclusion of the sixth day, of the final day of creation before God rested, He looked at everything He created and He said it's very good. And we see the goodness of God in His creation. And creation today cries aloud of the goodness of God. God's goodness is witnessed in the hearts of all people everywhere, throughout all creation. Turn your Bibles to Romans for just a moment. The problem is not the goodness of God. 
problem is the hearts of sinners. Romans chapter 1. We begin at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress, they hold down, the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul is saying basically what we read or referred to in Genesis where God declares everything good. It is an evidence of the goodness of God Himself. And Paul is arguing this goes throughout all the world. There's not a place where men cannot look, cannot see the very nature, the goodness of God in His creation, in His works. So the idea of what about that poor, innocent native somewhere? Well, what about them? They have a witness. And their hard hearts, they don't have to be a poor native somewhere. They can be an affluent American in the middle of our society. And their hard hearts reject the goodness of God. They deny the reality of God. And you go on to chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Don't you know the goodness of God, the patience of God, is that you would turn to God? And yet men's hearts are hard. And they will not do it. And then lastly, verses 14 and 16 of that same chapter. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, that is the Mosaic law, by nature do what the law requires, what does the law require? And they go through the commandments. Here's what it requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. God's law, stating His goodness, is imprinted in the very consciousness of mankind, of humankind. We could go on and say that the goodness of God, that's just God's goodness in creation. Then we could say that it's expressed in His providential care. And I'll not go as much into detail there. But I would read you these words of Christ. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fell, fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. You ever think about that? In the middle of 
the storm-tossed sea. Even the hairs of my head are numbered. But God's goodness is most vivid in in redemption itself. Sometimes the question is asked after Adam and Eve sinned, why didn't God just strike it all off and just do away with it? Open the earth and be done. I only have one answer. The goodness of God. It's not His purpose. Psalm 119 verse 68 says, You are good, speaking of God, and you do good. And His intention was to do good for His people. The goodness of God is the grounds of expectation to repent. Why would God receive a sinner like me? Through Christ, but it's the goodness of God. Why would I pray to God? Because of His goodness and His intention to do goodness or good. Why would I trust and rest in God? A verse that in a situation we often cite is is that of um, Abram, Abraham. When God sent message and word to him that he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. The entire place. Man, woman, boy and girl. Cows, dogs, sheep and hogs. He was going to destroy it. It was filthy. It was ruined. It was nasty. God said he would destroy it. And Abraham was praying, Lord, but what if there's 50 people there that are righteous that call on your name? Abraham, I'm not destroyed if there's 50 there. But Lord, what if there's 40? Abraham, I'm not destroyed if there's 40 good and righteous people there. Lord, what if there's 30? I'm not destroyed if there's 30. But Lord, what if there's 10? I'll not destroy it if there's ten. And Abraham says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do that which is right? And when we hurt and we face struggles and we don't have answers and you come to me with a question and I don't have an answer, I can tell you the judge of all the earth to do that which is right. Because he's good. And he does good. And then lastly, and I must hasten on to this, we have, we are exhorted to give thanks to the Lord first for he's good, second for his steadfast love endures forever. That word in the Hebrew is chesed. 
And therein you find some variations in your Bibles, the mercies of the Lord or the steadfast goodness of God. But the Hebrew is chesed. Those of you that remember Scott and Sarah Leon, one of their girls, this is their middle name. According to Vine's complete expository dictionary, the word is used 240 times in the Old Testament. And I read you this from that um, lexicon. The term is one of the most important in the vocabulary of Old Testament theology and ethics. God's chesed is one of his most central characteristics. God's loving kindness is offered to his people who need redemption from sin and enemies and troubles. A recurrent refrain describing God's nature is abounding, plenteous, and chesed. The entire history of Yahweh's covenantal relationship with Israel can be summarized in the terms of Chesed. It is the one permanent element in the flux of covenantal history in this world that is shifting and moving and not staying the same and values shift and move. The one constant is that loving kindness, that eternal, everlasting loving kindness of God. Why should I give thanks? Because God is good. And His chesed, His mercy, His enduring love is for eternity. God's chesed is great. 1 Kings 3, 6, And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you, and you have kept for him this great and steadfast love. It's defined as plenteous. Psalms 85, verse 5, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in chesed, in this steadfast love. It is eternal. Psalm 103, verse 17, But the chesed, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. It doesn't run out in a generation. It doesn't run out in location. But it's still as much today and as real today as it was when God made a covenant with Abraham. God's chesed. His everlasting love. His steadfast love. And it's new and fresh. And this is one of the passages I love. I'm sure you do as well. From Lamentation chapter 3. Verse 17. My soul is bereft of peace. I don't have any peace. Jeremiah wrote. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say... My endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord, the chesed of the Lord, never ceases. His mercies, His steadfast love is new every morning. Every morning, new, fresh 
mercies, everlasting love. Great is your faithfulness to your God's So we have in Psalms 107 a declaration of God. He is good. And his steadfast love, his chested endures forever. And we have an exhortation. Psalm 107 verse 1. That is that we are to properly respond. And we do that by giving thanks. We verbally say that God is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. Of all of God's creation, you are different. You have the capacity, mental capacity, mental capacity, physical capacity, emotional capacity to give thanks to God. Other creatures may do it just by they're living their life, but you, of all of God's creation, have this capacity to say, God is good. His mercy endures forever. His steadfast love is forever. His chesed knows no end. Yet, Thanksgiving is so often absent. I think of the power or the miracle actually of Jesus cleansing the ten lepers and all ten are clean by doing what Christ told them to do and then one came back and we read in Luke 17 then one of them when he saw that he was healed turned back praising God with a loud voice and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered Implying the others weren't, by the way. This one was. And the implication is the others were not. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? And now I think of the parable. Well, I've taken a wife. I'm too busy. Or I've bought a yoke of oxen. I haven't seen them. I've got to go prove them. Or I'm going to buy some land and we come up with reason after reason after reason after reason. Or excuse, really, after excuse after excuse. That's why we don't go back. Where were these nine? I have no idea. Jesus said, where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Why would that be? Why would there be an absence of thanksgiving? One could be a lack of observation and recognition. Verse 43 of Psalm 107, Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. It could be afflictions, difficulties, and trials that turn our attention from the goodness and chesed of God. They blind us. But dangerously, it can be a lack of conversion. One of the great marks of of an unconverted person is they are not thankful. They are not thankful. They are filled or full, whatever, with ingratitude. Even though they enjoy the blessings of God day in, day out, we can say, where are the nine? 
I close with this quote by Thomas Brooks, Puritan. There is no such way to get more grace as to be thankful for little grace. I need grace in my life. Do you? Brooks says there's no better way to get more grace than to be thankful for a little grace for the grace I have. He goes on. He who opens his mouth wide in praises shall have his heart filled with graces. And gratitude stops the ears of God, shuts the hand of God, turns away the heart of the God of grace. Unthankfulness is the greatest injustice that may be. May it never be said of you or me that we are grateful. We're not grateful for the goodness of God and the chesed, the steadfast love of God that is rich in you day by day by day by day. God bless you. May your confession be that God is good. The steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, who is redeemed from trouble. Let's pray. Holy Father, for your word, we are grateful for this portion of it, this psalm, this great expression of your faithfulness, your goodness, your steadfast love. Lord, may the truths of this passage redound in the hearts of your people. May we find our peace, our rest, our security, our hope, our all. In Christ our Lord, in whose name I pray. Amen.